Will you please welcome our guest moderator, news editor of Empire Magazine and part of the presenting team on BBC's Film 2013, Chris Hewitt. Hi everyone. Thanks very much for coming along. Uh, tonight's guest, Danny Boyle, is of course one of our greatest directors. He's the director of Shallow Grave, Train Spotting, 28 Days Later, Sunshine, 127 Hours, and of course Slumdog Millionaire, for which he won an Oscar. He's also, although he probably won't want me saying this, something of a national treasure, having orchestrated the opening ceremony of last year's Olympics. Now, before we meet him, let's take a look at the trailer for his new film, Trance. There's something hidden inside me. What is it? It's a memory. A memory? A memory of what you did. Anyone can steal a painting. Let's start the bidding at five million pounds. All it takes is a bit of muscle. But no piece of art is worth a human life. Stop right there. No piece of art is worth a human life. Where is it? I can't remember. I got hit on the head. That you remember. Have you ever been hypnotized before? Whatever is in his head, she can find. Now, I want you to relax, Simon. Stop. What can you make him do? Anything. Go part your plan. Two of you, one of it together. She put that there. It's not real. He wants the painting for himself. I don't believe that. <laughs> Where is it? Why did you lie to me? The memory is locked in a cage. And with enough force, the lock can be broken. Elizabeth, I have something to tell you. You ready? And remember. Fantastic stuff. Please welcome the director of Trance, the great Danny Boyle. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hi, Danny. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. So one of the guys out the back there who's not part of the audience, one of the staff, I was looking at him and he watched it, he went, hmm, this looks all right. <laughs> That's good. one ticket sold. <laughs> Job done. Uh, now, this is a, Hollywood's all about elevator pitches, being able to sum up films in one or two pithy sentences. Trance kind of defies that, doesn't it, really? I mean, but at the same time, sum it up in one or two pithy sentences <laughs> for the people who might not know what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a twisting thriller, really, is what it is. And it's kind of, it, it, it's predicated upon three characters, which we did in our first movie, Shallow Grave. Mm. And it's also predicated along that idea that you don't know of those three characters, there isn't a simple Hollywood hero to root for. You know, and that's very, very important in it, that it, people who like that kind of original thing where you, you don't quite know where you're going to go mm. um, happens. I mean, it's set up as McAvoy is the hero, for sure. You kind of play with that, and certainly that was one of James's 
one of the things James, I think why James wanted to do the part is it set up like a, you know, oh, well, it's going to be McAvoy, isn't it? Clearly, he's warm, <laughs> he's got the voiceover, he appears to know what he's doing, yeah. and then it all immediately begins to twist and turn, and you never qu you're not meant to really know until you get right to the end, obviously. Okay, but at its core, it's about an art heist gone wrong. Yeah, it appears to be about a stolen painting. Yeah. Certainly, he's a he's a he's like a, he works at Sotheby's. We couldn't call it Sotheby's <laughs> for legal reasons, so I'll deny that completely. Although it's basically Sotheby's, and uh, in fact, the the chief auctioneer in it is actually the top guy at Sotheby's. Who oh, really? Wanted, who wanted to play a part? Couldn't he pull a few strings and well, get Sotheby's involved? Yeah, we, they, they gave us a lot of help, but you ha we okay. had to call it. So it's called Delances, obviously, yeah. for legal reasons. And because uh, obviously no paintings ever get stolen from Sotheby's. Um, but it's, <laughs> so this painting gets stolen and he's involved clearly. Yeah. And there's a criminal gang headed by Vincent Cassell, the great French actor. And he appears to double cross them mm -hmm. and they punish him and he, uh, with a blow to the head. And, which, and then it's a classic movie trope. He claims amnesia. And there's a great line in it where one of the characters says, amnesia is bollocks. Everybody <laughs> knows amnesia is bollocks, you know. And, and it, and it, but whether it is or not, you find out because they, they then, there's a bit of lateral thinking by Vincent Cassell, and they, yeah. get, they go to Harley Street and get a hypnotherapist, yeah. who's played by Rosario Dawson. Yeah. And she begins to explore his mind. And the, the film becomes a series of trances like the title. And, and you go further and further into that. Was that the appeal for you? Because I imagine a lot of directors want to direct a heist film because you get a lot of slick action going on, and that's that's pretty much dealt with in the first five minutes. But then you have this very trippy, trancy, you know, pardon the expression, yeah. uh, series of hallucinations, semi-hallucinations where you don't know what's real and what's not. That must have been a, a joy as a director to do. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm a big Nick Rogue fan, who's oh, yeah. the great pioneer of that amazing facility that cinema has, which is its time present. Mm. And unless you signal to an audience with you know, black and white or sepia, that this is not present time. You accept what passes in front of you as present time. Yeah. It's an amazing thing like that cinema. It locks you in for 90 minutes and you accept that. And then you can play with time past, future, time imagined and time present itself, like in a, in a very, very fluid way, which he d he's genius at doing that. Mm. Those films he made from performance right the way through to Eureka, which is a film not many people have seen and mm. I can really recommend. If you ever get the chance to see it, it's got Gene Hackman's greatest performance, and it was buried by a studio because they hated it. Yeah. And it's an incredible film called Eureka. It's quite difficult to get, but um, worth it if you can. If you do, you shout Eureka because you found it, which is a, which is a bit of a, a joke there. But anyway, moving on uh, went down, <laughs> very swiftly. Yeah, went down, went down well. well. They liked yeah. it in the front row. Um, and the, uh, the genesis of this movie is quite interesting as well because you shot the movie before stopping completely for the Olympics opening ceremony. And then you edited afterwards, is that, is that correct? Or yeah, we did. Yeah. We, so the, Olymp the, uh, the opening ceremony was like two years, 2010, 2010 and 2011, preparation. It's yeah. like literally two years preparation. But you realized if you just did that, you would go mad because it's very corporate. <laughs> it's a huge organization. Everything moves at snail's pace. Everybody wants to check everything all the time. And it's like, and you become a committee member, you know, unless you're careful. So what we did is we very cleverly we were tipped off to do this by insiders. We took a little sabbatical in the first year, and we did Frankenstein at the National Theatre. Yeah. And then in the second year, 2011, we shot, at the end of the year, trance. Mm. So we do two days a week on the Olympics, like um, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we'd shoot trance, and then go back to the Olympics. <laughs> and it was fantastic, because it is a dark film, yeah. and, but it's, if, you, if you just spent your whole life 
celebrating in this family-friendly, absolutely positive way that the opening ceremony has to be, yeah. you would go mad, you know, <laughs> or you'd be lying in the end. So it was great to release ourselves into this other world, which is uh -huh. the word of trance. And we shot it in the same area in East London. Mm -hmm. Most of it shot in East London where we were preparing the Olympic Games. Okay. And it was wonderful to have this, basically, they are related, the two experiences, because there was a lot of the crew that worked on trance worked on the opening ceremony. Okay. But it is like a mad, sex-mad, uh, evil cousin that you would never let your children <laughs> near, you know? That, that kind of person that is a, is a bit deranged that you'd never let them near. So it's yeah. a bit like, it's a relative like that, yeah. But you did manage to persuade the Queen to jump out of a helicopter for this one. Yes, she didn't want to be in trance, <laughs> and I think once she's seen it, she'll know why. <laughs> but did you feel at the same time while you were doing that, that sort of weird job share, that surreal job share, that you must have uh, echoed McAvoy's character's mindset at the same time, trying to juggle the Olympics and then juggle this movie at the same time? Was that ever a strain on you? Oh, no, it was wonderful, actually. I mean, we were very lucky to get that opportunity. It was wonderful to keep your hand in on this kind of narrative storytelling, mm -hmm. this kind of twisted storytelling. Yeah. It was wonderful to be able to do that, because actually, it refreshed you for going back into the committee meetings <laughs> where you're endlessly positive, national celebration, family friendly. You know, <laughs> you could go back in there with a, you know, with, with a good heart, really. Absolutely. Let's take a look at a, a clip, first clip from the movie. This is the, uh, the heist itself. I um, don't know if you want to set up exactly what we're going to be seeing in this, in this scene. Oh yeah, it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's the it's the setup. It's it, well, you'll see the guy from Sotheby's actually, who's not from Sotheby's. He's from Delancey's, <laughs> obviously, and he had no part in the uh, robbery of the painting, although it's implied very loosely <laughs> that he might have done. Anyway. Okay, let's take a look. So that, that score is fantastic. Who did the score in this one for you? So it's done by the guy, uh, one of the guys from Underworld, mm -hmm. Rick Smith, who we've yeah. worked with over the years, right the way back since Trainspotting, actually. Yeah. Um, they did put Born Slippy, which we put on Trainspotting. And we worked with them uh, 
both together. There's another guy, Carl Hyde, but on this one, Rick did it on his own. And it, it's um, a, some of the music you heard there is from a band called Uncle, fantastic mm -hmm. band called Uncle. Yeah. And they sampled a David Bowie track. I don't know, anybody know which track that was? Did you notice the David Bowie sample in there? No. Someone's yes. Someone's it. Yeah. <laughs> No, you, you can't answer, no, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, there's another, and then in the second clip, there's another David Bowie reference, actually. We'll see if anybody picks that up. Do you get points? Having spa failed spectacularly to pick the first one. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, they might get the second one. But it's really interesting as well watching that, that high sequence, so because, uh, and just the whole beginning of the movie, because it paints very, very specifically a procedure for how to steal a painting. How realistic was that and how did, could, could you have to skirt around presumably Sotheby's and other auctioneers are not particularly happy with films telling people how they can rip off paintings so did you have to how much of it's fantasy how much of it is, is plausible well we, we kind of we, we sold it to them as delight really uh -huh. that it wasn't like a serious documentary about how to go about it yeah though actually it's a pretty good way of doing it actually yeah, it's not <laughs> bad. as far as I could see <laughs> you know having been through this security pr um, procedures yeah. but um what was lovely about doing the film is that we set out everything in the film is designed, and this is kind of a decision you make in the filmmaking process, everything's designed to seduce you, to literally entrance you. So the pleasure that you enjoy mm. early on in the film is deliberately there, even before she, Rosario Dawson's character comes in to seduce James McAvoy into trance. Mm. You, you're kind of trying to seduce the audience in it. So I if you go and see the movie, you'll see the choices of where they live and everything. There's an extra kind of pleasure um, yeah. about the, the places that they live. And it's all designed and the music is designed. Everything's designed to kind of lure you in in that way. Mm. And to kind of, yes, to, to, to make you as like as possible the five to 10% of the population who are highly suggestible. And they're the people who Dar people like Darren Brown invite up onto the stage. So when you see those shows, it's not fake. You know, it's not actors faking it because he's not stupid. He knows a disgruntled actor two years later would sell the story to the Sun that it was all a setup and everything sure, like yeah. that. He actually picks out the, the five to ten percent who are willing to lose themselves in trance, which is supposedly true. For the rest of us, it remains a, a very benign meditative process. Lovely, and you remain, as they say, aware of where you are and not fully asleep. But for the other five to ten percent, it's a more powerful tool, mm. and that's what we use in the film. So, did you actually undergo hypnotism yourself uh, as a part of the research for this? I didn't actually, because okay. I'm a bit of a control freak, and <laughs> directors are control freaks. You're trying to control everything all the time, and I was a yeah. bit worried if I did go under, if I was one of the five to ten percent. <laughs> What I might say was a bit of a worry, <laughs> um, and what the actors would think if they heard it. So, um, you know, like, who are you going to cast first, if you ask that? All, that, all those kind of <laughs> questions uh, might come up. But, we, but the actors <laughs> went under. We tried, James and Vincent got kind of sleepy and dreamy, uh -huh. but they didn't really reveal anything interesting. Okay. Um, Rosario did a lot uh -huh. privately with, with okay. hypnotherapists, so I think okay. she went into it. Because she was coming at it from a different angle, presumably. Yeah, as, as, a, as a professional from, yeah. from Harley Street, of, oh. uh, who'd been there for many years. Mm. Yeah. And with this, uh, this script, not to give too much away, because it's got very many twists and turns, as you said, um, it's a bit of a house of cards, isn't it? So how difficult was it to construct, A, the script with John Hodge, you know, your, your great long-term writing, writing partner, but also um, th in the editing process, in the editing room, and make sure that everything fits into one scene and it doesn't fall apart? Well, when we, when we, first, when we shot it, um, which was in November, October and November of 2011. We did a rough assembly. Our editor, John Harris, worked on it and did a, mm. a kind of rough assembly, a bit, a bit better than a rough assembly. So that when we came back, 
um, after the Olympics, and it was like literally eight months later we actually came back to it, we were able to watch a cut. Now, normally as a director, you're saturated with knowledge of what you've done. You know everything too much, almost in a way, sometimes. Mm. And it was amazing to watch it because you'd forgotten it. Your mind had obviously <laughs> film, filled with this Olympic ceremony, and you'd kind of forgotten it a bit. And you watched the film a bit more like the first time you read a script, yes. or the first time that an audience see it. And, and, you know, and I realized that we'd done a classic thing which everybody writes about when you make these kind of films, which is that you are very, very, very paranoid about giving anything away. Yes. And you don't allow any access to clues. And you realize when you watched it, oh no, you've got to put in clues. Mm. And we began to feed in clues from elsewhere in the film, stuff that we shot, but okay. not put in the edits. And you begin to, because you need to leave a breadcrumb trail for people to begin to pick up. That's one of the delights of it, of this kind of film, you know, this kind of psychological thriller where clearly re revelations are gonna arrive yes. later as you go on into the movie. Okay, but one thing we can give away, because I think you've mentioned it already, and it's in the clip that's just about to come up, is that James McAvoy's character, Simon, is in on the art heist from the beginning. Kind of, yes. Kind of. Yes. That's, that's, uh, we can say that. In we a way, you can say, say that, absolutely, yeah. And uh, that plays into the next clip. Let's, uh, let's take a look. That's where we meet Vincent Castle's character. Stop right there. Step back. Remember, do not be a hero. Put it down. No piece of art is worth a human life. So there's a, there's a second David Bowie reference there. Anybody get that second David Bowie reference? No? And we get the first David Bowie reference. Nobody's <laughs> Answers in the postcard <laughs> to Danny, please. Um, it's very interesting as well to see um, how you constructed the opening of this movie with uh, James not only has voiceover, but he delivers pieces to camera yes. as well. Can you talk about that, that decision, where that came from? That was very, that was very instinctive, actually. We, we, we did it originally as, um, just, as, just as a voiceover, like you'd normally expect. And then quite late on in the shooting, we decided to shoot it as a piece to camera so that he would literally have a personal relationship with you, which is very unusual. Mm -hmm. Most movies, you very rarely does the actor look at the audience. You know, it's a, it's a kind of newsreader thing and it breaks that wall, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's a kind of rule you're not meant to break, yeah. really. Yeah. But we wanted to build this sense of he was the reliable one. He, he knew what was going on and he would be your guide, you know, your companion through, through, through the piece and that's, very much a, a, a kind of deliberate choice at the beginning of the film. So it was a wonderful, um, those are kind of things that you, as you're making the film, you decide to do, you know, you've no idea when you set out you're gonna do that, but we eventually decided to do that, yeah. Uh, it's a great three-hander and they're all fantastic. Can you talk about casting this trio, starting with James? Well, James, I'd, I'd always loved James as an actor and mm. um, I thought he might be a bit young for it, mm. but he came in and, and he auditioned for it, which he was delighted to do because he, 
And, and, and you could see, you know, he's in his 30s now, and you forget they grow up, you know, very, very quickly. <laughs> and, and he wants to do, as you, as you can see, he, he wants to do darker stuff, you know. Yeah. And he certainly has, he has an extraordinary passage through the film, which was in, in, amazing watching him negotiate it. Because he's a guy who, uh, if you see the movie, he, his awareness grows as the film goes on. And you see him, I saw him begin to track it as an actor. And he had many, he used to talk about the executive in the brain, which is supposedly what the part of us that um, controls like breathing. Because you don't think about breathing, you just do it. Yeah. But if you, if you don't, you die. And it's the executive that's actually organizing that for you. And you don't actually know what you're going to say next either, really. It's the executive <laughs> kind of leading that. You've got a general idea, but the executive leads that. And he used this. He would be constantly referring to the executive, was telling him things that he wasn't aware of. Okay. You know, as he begins to get glimpses, because you begin to follow, as you follow the breadcrumbs, they all begin to pick up the breadcrumbs of what's actually really gone on. Fantastic. And, uh, and Vincent Cassell? Well, you need a guy who can be tasered and get straight back up again. <laughs> so you go to the greatest French actor there is. I mean, I don't know whether you've seen Mezrine or Mayrine, I think it's called, which is a wonderful, yeah, it's an amazing movie. Yeah. And he, so he's played it before. But again, that was one of the delights of it. You go in, you think, Vincent Cassell, he's got a shotgun. I know that kind of movie. Yeah. But by the end of the movie, he's a very, very different guy, really. And so they all, th all three of them actually had uh, roles to play which weren't, what they seemed at first. And that's obviously one of the delights for us of doing the film. Mm. And, I, and I hope one of the delights of watching it, really. Not a real taser, I'm guessing, hopefully. He no, 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 no. He didn't no, actually no. taser. No. Oh, he, he could take it, clearly. I'm sure he could, yeah. And, uh, and Rosario as well. And Rosario, yeah. well, I, I tried to cast her in a film many years ago, which didn't actually happen. And um, I've always thought she's been very underused in movies. And, yeah. um, and it's a problem for women, in, in Hollywood especially, because there just aren't the roles, you know, yeah. um, that allow them the f you know, to command the movie. And one of the delights of doing the film is that, although she comes into the film like 20 minutes in, as a seemingly innocent professional bystander, she moves more and more towards the center of the film. And by the end of the film, it's wonderful to have, with those other two guys, someone in the engine room you know, who's a woman, because we'd never made a film really like that. We've had great actresses in films like Tilda Swinson, Kerry Fox, Naomi Harris, but um, Rose Byrne, uh, Michelle Yeoh, fantastic. Mm. But never anybody who's absolutely in the engine room. So it was it, that was a wonderful, that's a fresh thing for us to do. Are there elements, uh, not to give too much away, but you know, as you say, her character does change. Are there elements, noir elements in there? Is she something of a femme fatale in, in a way? There's certainly a section of the film where she behaves as a, a classic femme fatale. Mm. But we didn't want to do... We didn't want to make it like a kind of icy blonde, mm. cold thing. And it actually, as you go deeper into the film, you realize why she behaves like a femme fatale. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of deliberate decision on her part at a certain moment to manipulate the men. Mm -hmm. You know, she loses her beauty, her, her allure, her sexuality yeah. to kind of pit them against one another and, to, and towards her goals. Um, but the story in the end has real emotion in it at the end. Um, that actually tells you something more yeah. about her than, than the chilly, icy blonde, you know? Absolutely. Uh, which I imagine, you know, to keep track of the story, again, going back to the House of Cards, did you have lots of post notes in the wall making sure this happens at this point, which means it affects this point, but we have to go back and make sure we cover it off you've earlier got on to, in the you've film? Got to keep you've got to make sure you're okay you've on got the top of And yeah. it's interesting, we, we, um, so on the, on the DVD when it comes out, which I'd also recommend, obviously, the, um, <laughs> um, you, you can see the film in, there's a kind of way you can see the film in, in, in a narrative, in, in a correct sequential, cr chronological order. Okay. You know, which is, a, which is, and it does stand up, obviously. 
you, you make sure it stands up like that, yeah. Interesting, Frank. And uh, let's meet Rosario Dawson now as Elizabeth Lamb in this. And uh, at this point, Simon has already gone to see her. Uh, this is the second time they meet, and she's... Yeah, and she knows he's wired. Yeah. Because the gang have sent him in there, and they've wired him so they can keep track of what's going on, just in case, like me worrying about being a director, just in case he says something. <laughs> and so she knows that when he goes in for the second session, and they're listening outside in a van. And she uses that to her advantage, as we're about to see. Let's have a look. So I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine you're in an elevator. A wide elevator with velvet walls and thick carpets. And as the doors close, your eyelids become heavier. And as your eyes become heavier and the elevator begins to go down, you realize that this is the elevator of relaxation. And now you're on the third floor going down and you could get out, but you want to go on deeper deeper, deeper into relaxation. And you feel that perhaps you'll never want to get out. It's so safe here, so comfortable, so relaxed. I don't want to talk to Simon anymore. What? I want to talk to the men who are listening. The men who heard him. Oh. And from there, the plot thickens, believe me. Uh, okay, <laughs> so if you have any questions now for Danny, then please put your hands up. We'll have a Rovi microphone going around. Y yes, please, sir, in the front row. Thank you. Hi. Uh, you've worked with a great variety of actors over your filmmaking career. Um, what is it that actors bring to the table that have caused you to have perhaps better experiences with some actors as opposed to other actors? What is it you look for in actors? It, it, I, I'm very lucky because I started in the theatre. I started at the Royal Court Theatre, which is a, a great place to give you respect for writers because it's a writer's theatre. And I've always tried to maintain that. And uh, this is a business where they're treated uh, traditionally very, very, very badly, really. Mm. And I, we've always tried to make them feel included in the whole filmmaking process. Um, but the other thing the theatre gives you is it tr a training with actors. And, and I know some film directors kind of hate actors because they fear them or they don't understand them. But to work in the theatre makes you realise they are the storytellers, really. And it's, it's, I, I got a reminder of that when we did Frankenstein. I hadn't done theatre for about 15 years. And of course, when you do a play like McAvoy's doing Macbeth at the moment, mm. you, when you rehearse with them as a director, you're just fueling them for the storytelling event that they carry on each evening when they tell it from the, the beginning to the end every evening as well as possible for each audience, you know? And, and, and in a way, they do the same in a film. It's slightly different, obviously, because you use them and, and push them away, but actually, the, the audience still experience it through the actor. And for me, I know people do with it in, in different ways. I love actors, and I love what they bring to the table. And if they sense that from you, they bring more, really. You know, and you can... And I don't like... I'm, I'm not... I don't like our films to be muttered. You know, you can do films, and they work brilliantly, where people do nothing, absolutely nothing. I like actors to act, really <laughs> push it. And, I like, and, it, and it helps you, because you, you raise, raise the kind of realism. British films are normally social realist, mm. and they like to lift that, if you can, through all sorts of decisions that you make. So it hums a bit. You know, it's a bit heightened. It's not quite realistic. And then 
you can do strange things stylistically. You can go jump to a guy disappearing down a toilet, like you know, <laughs> which wouldn't make sense in a realistic film. But you know, you accept it, and it's because the it's actually you think it's because the actors have prepared you for that, you know, and they've lifted the realism of the piece. And they and I like big acting. I like them to act big, you know. So. Um, you have to get their trust to do it because often they'll come in and they, they don't know you very well. You only have a little bit of rehearsal. And the first couple of takes will be very minimal, you know, which is them doing safety first. And then you say, we've got them. And you kind of encourage them to push it more. Mm. And then you, get, you can get wonders with them. And like their performances, the three of them in this are pretty good, actually. They're really good. I mean, they're great actors anyway, I think, in their own rights. Whereas we normally kind of try and bring people in who haven't that much experience. And yeah then we can do what we want with them, <laughs> which you can't get away with these three, because they know what they're doing. <laughs> but actually, you get that trust again, and you get them to push it a bit, yeah. Uh, a director once told me that um, he thinks it's important that directors know how to act, that they take acting lessons. Have you ever taken acting lessons? Is that something you would do? No, I used to act at school. Okay. And I, well, you say act, but I, I mean, I shouted, because <laughs> I had a, a loud account, voice, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so so it, w it went all right at school. But yeah. once I started directing, I... Uh, I, I I kind of knew that was for me, really. Okay. And, I, 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 and I do try and join in with them, because often actors are a lot, it's, w it's one of the weird things, because it's a, and, and it's often why they're a strange bunch, because they go, they're going into a, they go into a room which can be as full of as many people as you, all staring at them with cameras or not, reading the paper, you know, kind of picking their nose, looking up secret texts, and, and yet they, at that moment, are crying their hearts out about the death of their grandma. You know, and that's a very surreal experience. So I try from behind the camera to encourage them. So I'm quite noisy behind the camera, okay. encouraging them to cry more or to, I know I laugh at their jokes, even though it's the 50th time you've heard it. <laughs> and it, and it, and it, it loosens, them up, loosens them up, you know, and keeps them going, I think it helps. Okay, I might try the uh, Eureka joke again, see how it goes down <laughs> second time. Uh, any other questions, please? Yes, right here in the uh, second row. Hi guys, um, just want to ask uh, about uh, Danny. Your films are very like visceral experiences when you watch them in the cinema. I just want to ask what your thoughts on uh, 3D is at the moment, because a lot of directors, like people like Scorsese and Sam Raimi, are now using 3D. So, w w what are your thoughts about the subject? I'm not. I'm not very keen on 3D personally. It's just a personal thing. It's partly because I wear glasses, and obviously, when you go to 3D movies, you have to put another pair of glasses on. <laughs> For those of you who wear glasses, you'll know that feeling. It's like, oh God, here we go, and you slip them on over the top. Um, but I like. I. 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 I mean, I think some people use it amazingly. Like Cameron uses it amazingly. You know, and when you look at the beginning of Avatar, the early scenes in Avatar, where he where he uses it in a genuine spatial way not a kind of shock way. Mm. It's really beautiful. But for me, it's like, it's not something I particularly want to do. I, I, I like the hallucinogenic effect of the flat screen, because especially these days where you can get quite big screens and, and you lose yourself in that picture. I like that through, I think sound is the biggest 3D element ever and 3D will never match sound. And those 3D elements that they use, the jump moments, are all sound anyway. You wouldn't jump without the sound. You know, it's not the 3D that's making you jump. It's actually the sound. Yeah. And it's a trick in, it's yeah. a trick you, you know, because what you do, and you'll notice it, the next, I'm sure some of you have spotted it, you, you know, you drop the sound levels, so your ears open up, and then you can't see the sound coming, and it's there, like that, and you like that. You know, and that's the greatest 3D effect ever, I think, for me, sound. Do you know that they're bringing in prescription 3D glasses, so? 
<laughs> I'm just putting it out there. You never know. Uh, any other questions for Danny? Yes, please, here in the uh, front row. Thank you. Hi. Um, I saw the film on Monday. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. It was great. Um, I recommend everyone go see it. Um, Excellent. <laughs> He's my cousin. <laughs> I've been tweeting about it. <laughs> my evil, twisted, <laughs> dark cousin. Yeah. Um, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm planning on making my first feature film next year, hopefully, for no money, essentially. Um, but I wondered if you had any advice as someone making their first feature. Get your coverage. I, I was amazed. I, 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 I was very lucky. When I was starting off, I, I, I wrote to a guy called Alan Clark, who's a wonderful director who directed Scum, and, it, and we did a film together eventually in Northern Ireland called Elephant. An amazing director. And he... Very stylistic, very bold director, did very strange things with cameras. Would, would do long, long tracking shots with Steadicam, like really way before Scorsese did them and things like that, you know, those developing shots that became very fashionable. When I asked him that question, same question, he said, get coverage. Because he said, you can have an idea on the day which you think is genius, you know, and when you get in the editing room where the film is really made, it's like disaster. And you need to have something else to cut to, to shorten, to shape get coverage. The other thing I would say to add to that is do one thing a day that is a bit mad. You know, that is, and that'll be your stamp on it. Because a lot of movies are just talking heads. It's like yeah. a character says one thing, you cut, a you know, somebody responds like that. That's that, I don't know, 70% of movies are made up of that. But have the madness once a day, you know, the kind of daft thing you do, and you'll be amazed. You know, how when you get in the editing room, how some of them will be embarrassing. You'll think, whoa, I'm glad nobody's going to see that. I'm not going to put that on the DVD extras. <laughs> but you'll also find something very special as well in, for, for the film. And good luck, really. You'll need lots of energy, but you need to supply that, and other people will then follow. If you don't have that energy, they'll drop away as well. They kind of look to a leader, really, you know, which you'll be. How many hours sleep during a, a film do you get? You don't, it's not that, I, I sleep really well, but yeah. you, yeah, but yeah, no, I'm very lucky. I worked with a director once who didn't sleep very well and it's terrible because they, then they start taking sleeping tablets and then yeah. they don't work and you know, they get drowsy during the day. But actually I sleep very well once the head goes on the pillow, that's it. But I think the adrenaline of actually carrying the crew, you have to be a bit evangelical in a way to carry everybody in your vision, your passion of what you want to do. And they'll love that actually, because they work on stuff a lot of the time that's a bit dull. And they like a lunatic now and again who's going to kind of <laughs> you know, do something a bit strange, you know. So, um, and you've got blue glasses on. You look like you might have a bit of a lunatic in you. So you should be all right. <laughs> is, he, is he right? <laughs> a little bit. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, yes, right here at the back, there's a lady with her hand up. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about the story of trance. And um, you have it in a quite non-linear way. Yes. Um, but then you said that, it works chronologically as yes. well. I'm just interested to know how much you imagined it um, as a nonlinear film before yes. you yeah. started writing and that process about making it more nonlinear or less nonlinear in, you know, in the editing as well. We increased, we increased the sense of it in the editing. I mean, films are really made in the editing. Despite everybody thinks it's visual, it's the cinematographer, it's the set designs, it's the actors, which it is, of course. But actually, the film is really made in the editing. We had a wonderful editor on this called John Harris. Mm. And John immediately, once we'd identified that we hadn't left enough clues, he immediately began to put clues in as an editor, which were non-linear, often. But they were there, and they just flow. And you have a good editor. They flow, they flow seamlessly through, because you're not identifying them necessarily as being out of time. 
because you, it just pa all passes as time present, but they are clues. And one of which, you've seen the movie, so like, there's, a, there's a bit where he knocks on glass. James is knocking on glass about five or six times through the movie. When we first looked at the movie as a cut, he only did that once right at the end. And you realize we looped back through and it gives you a clue about what James was talking about. That was his executive going, nah. and it's also a clue to the audience, nah. what's actually <laughs> going on here, you know? So, it's, so it, it increased. Uh, I think when we were preparing the movie, we tried to think in a non-linear way. We always had, as Chris said, like post-it notes effectively with the chronological order on, yeah. so that you didn't set, step outside you know, the fact that it does make sense eventually if you're, if you're clever, and there will be people who watch it who are clever, who will be able to keep up the whole time. And, and you know, you want, to, you want it to make sense for them as well. I, I don't count myself as one of those clever people, by the way. I got <laughs> lost in Looper, which I really loved, but I remember in the middle of it thinking, whoa, am I gonna be able to hang on here? And I was really glad I did, you know, because I loved the movie in the end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it should make sense, hopefully, yeah. In, in, in any order, actually. Excellent. Any other questions for Danny? Yes, please, here in the uh, second row. And then the lady back there in the third row. Um, yeah, I'm just going to ask for something very simple. Uh, what inspired you to write a film like this? I didn't write it. Okay. I, uh, we had a wonderful writer, John Hodge, who'd written Trainspotting and Shallow Grave, and, 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 and he worked on it. It was originally an idea by a guy called Joe O'Hearn, who was the original writer, and he gave us the story rights, and John developed the script. And they're both credited, and w wonderful to be able to work with them. Um, there's a famous story that they, they get, they, as I said before, they're treated so appallingly. And there's a famous story about Frank Capra's writer, because Frank Capra didn't write his movies, even though he's one of the revered mm. names that you hear, you know? And, and there's a famous story about his screenwriter, whose name, of course, I don't remember, typically. <laughs> and there'd been Case a, in point. a Capra movie had been out that this guy had written, and he'd got rave reviews, the Capra touch, Capra-esque, wonderful, celebrate, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the screenwriter who worked in a small office down the corridor stormed into his office the morning after with 90 sheets of blank paper. And he threw it on his desk and said, there, give that the Capra touch, you know? <laughs> and it's absolutely a great thing always to remember because it's those guys, those people who dream up the story for you. And then you kind of work with them if you have a good relationship. You give them, you know, you try and improve it and then you become the storyteller when you tell it. But you come back together in the editing with the producer and you tell the story together, you know, storytellers together with the editor. Fantastic. Time for a couple of last questions. There's a lady here in the uh, third row. Thank you. Hi. Um, Danny, we actually met a few times last year. I worked in the opening ceremonies. Thank you. Um, well done. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. Good. Um, I think that you're a fantastic filmmaker. That 127 hours made me faint in my living room at the end. Wow. It wow. was um, really, really awesome. But yeah. um, I was just wondering, from an actor's point of view, are you going back to the theatre anytime soon? Or have you got any more sort of theatre work lined up in the future? I'd love to go back to the theatre. Yeah, I've never done a Shakespeare. And I think any decent director should tackle Shakespeare at some point to see if you can do it. You know, because it is like a real challenge to any director, I think. So I'd love to do... A Shakespeare, certainly. Uh, there were lots of people fainted in 127 hours. You weren't alone. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a bit of a problem when we were marketing the film because it wasn't exactly ideal. I remember we were at this screen. They did this screening at Pixar, you know, in the big Pixar headquarters in California, and they were carrying them out. It was like, oh, God. <laughs> Woody, Buzz, yeah, yeah. They, were, they were all going there. 
Well, one of the things that I hope you enjoy the film. One of the things that's interesting about the film is that, and this is we we discovered this when we were we, we first screened the film in 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 America. It's the marketing people there who are brilliant. You know the way they understand how to market a film and everything. They said that films like this are much better. Women are much better watching them. It's really interesting. <laughs> and they said it's psychological thrillers. Women's minds are much more flexible, yeah. and they. They, they, they flow with a film much more easily than men's because men are a bit rigid and like, oh, I don't know about that. That's, you know, and they try and sort it out. And it was really, I have no <laughs> idea whether it's true. They swear it's true. And it's actually, um, so it's, so anyway, it's, it's a great date movie. So I think <laughs> there's lots to go, go on about afterwards. Yeah. And the, uh, the very last question, uh, all the way over here. Oh, yeah, the side. Yeah. On the very edge of my peripheral vision. Hello, I would like to ask about the best and the most difficult moment while uh, directing trends. Oh right, yeah. Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a plot point which involves nudity, which is uh, it's it's integral to the it's integral to the story of the film. It's a it's a clue and a very important factor in it, and that is always difficult, uh, you know, because you getting the actors to trust you enough to actually... Um, so the prospect of that was very worrying because we knew we weren't going to change it. There was no yeah. negotiation about it. And it was very... And, and although it is particularly true for Rosario's character, we, we also got Vincent's kit off and James's kit off as well. So there's lots there for everybody. And we wanted to make, <laughs> we wanted to make a film that was more like 70s films, you know, yeah. that actually use sex as a wonderful part of our lives. And it's part of you know, delicious storytelling is to use sex. And so that was, that was uh, challenging to carry that right the way through. She was brilliant on the day, actually. She just did it brilliantly on the day. She was fantastic. So that was, um, and, and I suppose, um, I suppose, I, I suppose there's, a, the bit from, there's a bit, I love action movies, right? I mean, I really love action movies. I'll watch any kind of action movie. I just <laughs> love them, even though I know they're rubbish sometimes. When they're great, there's almost nothing beats them for me. And there's a sequence at the end of this, which you, you saw, probably saw some glimpses of in the trailer. There's an action sequence at the end of it, which is really good. I, I mean, I'm biased, obviously. <laughs> and it was a lot, and it was, we did it in an old-fashioned way. We did it with this, this guy called Richard Conway, who's an amazing old special effects guy from Pinewood. And he's sort of semi-retired. And he did this sequence. And when you see it, it, you think, how did they not hurt the actors? Yeah. And he does this thing, and they're all safe, you know, absolutely safe in his hands. And yet, you can push it. And, and, it's, and I love that sequence at the, end of the, at the end of the movie. So that was a kind of like, I don't know whether that answers your question, difficult and easy. But those are two extremes that we try to, I, I really believe films should be extreme. I think that's why we go. It, and, and they'll need to increasingly be so to give you a reason to come to that cinema, because they're going to be available, so much material's available, so easily in your pocket, on your you know, computer, everything. There's got to be a reason why you go to that dark room, and it's to see the boundaries pushed out all the time. And we, I think we do that for all sorts of reasons. Catharsis is deeply embedded in us, the need for it to explore and to see actors do things on our behalf that you may never want to do yourself. You may be lucky enough never to do yourself, and God knows some of the things in this film you'd hope you'd never have to do, <laughs> but you, we employ actors to, to explore that for us. And you can laugh and cry and kind of fall in love with them or hate them, and it allows you to exercise that muscle, really. Um, 
you know, before you go back to regular life. And I, so I love those extremes. And those are two examples in the film that are very extreme. Fantastic. And that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for your questions. Thanks so much to Paul. Thank you very much. Danny Boyle. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Chris. You. Well done. Pleasure.